In your bulletin, it says, Jesus standing in the midst of his churches. This is a beautiful, beautiful scene. One of the things that Bible teachers like to point out is uh, how we can understand the Bible if we will look to it, if we will read it and actually give some time to it. The Bible gets a bad rap, doesn't it, of being uh, too long or too big or too old or too hard to understand or too complicated or whatever. And we've all said or heard somebody say, like, yeah, I just don't get it, man. I've, I've tried to read it. And I guess that's a fair response. But there sure is a lot of the Bible that's really good and easy to understand if we'll read it. But then you got passages like we're going to read today about Revelation that is really pretty clear to understand if you have just read it and given yourself a minute to try to process it. And by the end of today, you will not be confused. I assure you, by the end of today, you will be happy that you were here. And you will be thrilled to know what the Bible teaches. You're going to like it like that. The emphasis today is Jesus in the midst of his churches. We will see that in John chapter 1. It is actually now the vision uh, coming into the story. We know Revelation is a, is a revealing. It is a, a vision that John sees on this island of Patmos where he is in exile. Today is actually the vision. But as you heard me pray, I want to remind you that Jesus is Lord of the church. Jesus loves the church. The church is his church. Now the church exists in the world all over the place, in all sorts of settings. In Africa, there are lots of churches. In Asia, there are lots of churches. In Australia, there are lots of churches. In South America, there are lots of churches. In Europe, there are lots of churches. All different sizes, some of them have buildings, some don't. And all of the true church together make the church. The Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. He is the groom, and all the believers in the world, the church, are his bride. The Bible describes the church as the body of Christ. He is the head of the body. And all the believers in the world make up his body. The Bible says that Christ gave his blood, his life for the church. It is that important that he was sacrificed, tortured, crucified, and killed for the church. This is certainly no small matter. And shame on us or anybody else who has ever turned church into ritual or ungodly tradition or just something you do on a Sunday morning or just something that fits the culture. The church is too important to be that. Now, we know that the church over history has often lost its focus. Churches have ended up all about money and been hypocritical. Church has, churches have come too much about politics and become hypocritical. 
churches have become immoral and been hypocritical. And in becoming immoral, churches have hidden and covered up and hoped nobody found out about the immorality and been hypocritical. Now, in those moments, we need to remember that the whole church is not built on how good it is, but is built on how good Christ is. And the goodness of Christ is experienced in the church by the forgiveness that we have. And so churches are forgiven by Christ when they are repentant of their sins. When churches do not repent of their sins, there is no hope, proof, evidence, or confidence, or assurance that they are forgiven of their sins. But the world is filled with believers that make up churches that are trusting by faith alone through the forgiveness of sins in Christ alone. And the true church is Christ's. We read the passage from Matthew chapter 16 earlier, Matt McBroom did, where Jesus says, Well, Jesus asked Matthew, but who do you, or asked Peter in Matthew, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response says, you are right, and flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And then Jesus says, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is so secure in Christ, the living, reigning king of all, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth will take care of his church. There is no doubt about it. Now, You and I need to make sure we know what real church is and true church is. And you and I need to make sure that this building is not the church, but that you and I are the church, holding tightly to the truth of God in Christ, broken over our sins, not judgmental to others in the world, but repentant and needing Christ as a Savior, holding tightly to him. And in doing that, We are to be strengthened, fed, established, even fueled by the great assurance of Christ being with us. And this is the very beginning of the vision in Revelation. Read with me from chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's getting good, isn't it? Yes, it is. John now tells us some context. He is on this island, which is a place that prisoners are sent to. It's a small island. It's a rocky island. And it is where John is when the vision comes. Remember, this is just one vision. I keep hearing revelations from you all with an S on the end, but it's only one revelation. It's a vision. And God gives it to John. So in the first couple verses, 9 through 11, we hear some detail here. John is there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is what we have happening in the world. He's been faithful to God. He was one with Christ throughout Christ's whole ministry, and there have been consequences for that. In a fallen world where people sin against God and do not believe in a saving message that we're sinners that need forgiveness, in a fallen world where the message is that everybody's good, we just got to find that in ourselves, when you preach that that's not actually the case, there's going to be opposition and hostility, and the apostles, all of the apostles met that. John's fate is that now he is on this island, and he tells us why, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, we've got to remember, that's the very wording back from verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, the message, the revelation came from God, through Christ, through the angel, to John. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so John, as an extension of the revealed truth of God, has been faithful to that. Amen. John has been faithful to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And that has landed him in prison on the island of Patmos. That's the setting. But John is hopeful. And so he uses phrase like your brother, look at verse 9, your brother and your partner. That sounds good. And we're in this together, churches. All those who hope in Christ, look around and see all the others that hope in Christ. 
We don't have answers for this world. We don't have answers for the confusion. We can't explain why life is so heavy and difficult other than that it's a sinful, fallen world. But we do have the hope and encouragement that we're not alone in this. There are many here today who trust in Christ. And there are many other churches gathering right now that church in Christ. And there are millions throughout the world hoping in Christ. John, in unfortunate circumstances, writes this down to the churches and says, I, your brother and your partner. But then he mentions a few things. And the first is a big word, tribulation. This is a big word for those of y'all that study Revelation and the end times. And we're going to get there. I mentioned last week a timeline And I don't want to talk to you about the timeline yet. We don't start there. We start with where we're at. But another hint on my timeline, of which I think we see in the scriptures, is that John is in the tribulation right then. And he's in the tribulation right then with them. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation. Tribulation is grievous trouble. It is a severe trial. It is severe suffering. And they are in it. He is in it. The New Testament is filled with persecution and opposition toward Jesus and all those who follow him. And the world today is no different. It is filled with tribulation, opposition and hostility toward Jesus Christ, his truth, and all those who follow him. But John knows that they are in this together. Your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom. This is not the first time that we've heard the kingdom mentioned. In verse 5, he says that Jesus loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. The church is the kingdom of God. It is where the king reigns in the hearts of those who believe, and he is a partner and brother with them in it. And then the third thing that he says in verse 9 is, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. What a word. We have in verse 9 a sermon in and of itself. We have a prisoner apostle, follower of Christ, saying that they together are partners in tribulation and endurance. This is hard. Don't give up. I want to quit. We won't quit. How much longer? I don't know. Hold on. The patient endurance in the tribulation. Commentator Easley that I've been using says, tribulation is assumed to be the common experience of those who are in Jesus. It's the common experience for those who follow Christ. And it is not necessarily something that believers are trying to escape. It's the common experience. And we, by faith, are in the patient endurance We will hold on as we know Christ is holding on to us. We will strive to obey as we know that God is a keeping God. We will believe against all doubt knowing that he is with us even until the end. 
In verse 10, John goes on and says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit, man, he was focused. And commentator easily goes on and says, the phrase in the Spirit occurs here and three other times in the book of Revelation. And each time it means I had a vision inspired by the Spirit of God. Let's not complicate it. He was focused, he was trusting, he was believing, and God came and revealed this to him. That's what it means. And being in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he heard something. My first point this morning, and you kids with listening pages, we got four points today, and you can write these down. But I'm not going to tell you all four right now, because you kids write down all four, and then you put the listening pages away. I've kind of figured that out. So you got to listen to the whole sermon. Number one, what John heard. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard something behind him, a loud voice, and it was like a trumpet. This sounds awesome. This sounds majestic. It sounds uh, triumphant. It sounds like uh, an announcement. You hear the trumpet coming, and John hears it behind him. He doesn't see it. He's going to look in a minute, but he doesn't see it yet. He just hears it. And here's what it said. It wasn't a trumpet. It was a loud voice. It was like a trumpet, okay? You got to pay attention to Revelation. People say things about Revelation all the time, and they're wrong. That's why we're reading it slowly. He didn't hear a trumpet. He heard a voice, and it reminded him of a trumpet, okay? Big difference there. And here's what the voice said. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are seven cities, okay? You can look them up. These are seven cities. There were churches there, and the message was going to them. Now, I said last week that seven is in the Bible a lot, and it represents fullness, wholeness, completeness. There were more churches already then. We are to think of these are seven specific places, maybe well-known churches, seven specific cities that are being addressed. But the bigger message is that while they will receive this letter in hand, these churches will, it's a message to all churches, both then and now. Now, some people think that the letters to the churches, which is all of chapters 2 and 3, if you've studied the Bible, you, you know that. If you haven't, then turn over real quickly to chapters 2 and 3. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The whole of chapters 2 and 3 are seven many letters to those seven churches. Okay, If you look at 2-1, it's to the church in Ephesus. If you look at 2-8, it's to the church in Smyrna. If you look at 2.12, it's to the church in Pergamum. If you look at 2.18, it's to the church in Thyatira. If you look at 3.1, it's to the church in Sardis. 3.7, the church in Philadelphia. And 3.14, the church in Laodicea. And that ends chapter 3. The complete, all of chapters 2 and 3 are just addressed to those seven churches. But I don't want you to think that it was just that little section sent to that church. Instead, this whole book of Revelation, this whole message revealed to John on the island was written down in a book. That's what it says right there in verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. This whole thing was sent to each of those seven churches. And God preserved it for us through his word. Okay? 
That's what John heard. He hears an instruction to write it down. Now, I realize that this is 2022, and uh, there's a lot of skepticism, and there's a lot of people who would say, yeah, right. There's lots of people over the years, right? There's lots of religions floating around today who've had visions and written down books too, right? Some of the most well-known that you could think of, even right now in our world or in our city, say the same thing. One was in the 6th century. One was in the 19th century. And they got their own books too. So what's the difference? Well, we believe that John is absolutely trustworthy. He's the Apostle John. We have history, lots of history of John and his life and who he was. He was the brother of James. He was an early called apostle. We've got three years of the life and ministry of Jesus faithfully recorded, uh, testified throughout all of history, whatever century you're looking for, all the way back to first century that John was a follower of Christ. This isn't some random guy that popped up on the scene and said that he had a revelation. This is a guy who was tried and true as a faithful apostle for three years before he had the revelation, and everybody was believing John before this, and so there's no reason to question John. And then God gave it to the church as scripture, inspired by God, that it wasn't just a message from John that he saw God gave it to him. And so we believe that this actually happened. There aren't lots of revelations and visions out there, but this one is real from God, and he told him to write it down in a book and send it to the churches, and we knew that this was from God. So that's what he heard, write it in a book, and he did. And here we are reading it. Secondly, what John saw. Number one, what John heard. Number two, what John saw. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. All right, so he heard it, and now he turns to see it. This is, we can picture this, right? What is that? What was that noise? He turns around. He turns to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. By now, we know that the son of man is Jesus. I told you last week, Daniel 7, 13 has a very similar vision like this. It's the one like the son of man coming on the clouds. We are to know that is the savior, that is Christ in a vision from Daniel 7, 13. But we also know that in the gospels, Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man. Sometimes the son of man and sometimes the son of God. But the son of man, no questioning it, no mistaking it, is Christ. So he turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of them, this one like the Son of Man, it's a magnificent scene. Seven different lampstands. And in the middle, one like a Son of Man, Jesus. That's why the sermon title in your bulletin is Jesus in the Midst of the Churches. Now, he waits all the way till the end of verse 20 to, to make it really clear 
But let's go ahead and look at verse 20 so that you're not asking any questions while we finish out the sermon. Look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, now this is Jesus talking. He says, my there. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Everybody see that? How many people you think over the years have stopped at verse 12 and said, man, I don't get it, this book's, this book's crazy, man. Seven lampstands, I don't even know what this is. One like a son of man, stars, too much for me, man. I've never been into sci-fi. Stuff like that. But you go a little bit further and you hear Jesus and it's like, hey, there is some imagery here, there's some symbolism here, but here's what it is. The stars are the angels and the lampstands are the churches. That's crystal clear. Nobody's even confused anymore. You got that? That's why we read. That's why we read. That's why we don't give up as soon as we don't understand. Stick with it. So he turns and he sees this incredible image. Remember, he's an apostle. He's been given his whole life to go and find people that will follow Christ. The great commission handed down to this John with the others was, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And remember, I am with you till the end. And the disciples went and they did that. They worked, they labored, they scattered, they went. And everywhere they went, they were met with opposition and hostility. People didn't like them. They attacked them, they beat them. The book of Acts is a story after story after story of them landing in another place. And when they get there, they get beaten up and killed and ran out of town and said, we don't like you. We don't want you here. We don't want to hear that. And there is a tendency in Christianity to think, I don't know if this is what I signed up for. Sometimes I'm lonely. Sometimes I'm discouraged. We just sang what a friend we have in Jesus, and in that song, which is an old hymn, it says, do your friends sometimes despise and forsake you? To which every one of us, you may not have been into the old hymn, but every one of us go, I can relate. I can relate. Christianity is like that. John is in an island in chains and handcuffs, lonely when this vision comes, worried about the church, Think about how much worry there is about the church today. Every day there's something else that tells y'all that churches are dying and religion's failing and God must not be true. It comes out all the time. And John turns around and he sees Christ in the middle of the churches. Lampstands that represent the churches. But then he gives us this incredible description. This incredible description. Verse 13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. We are to see him as royal, significant, important. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. I'm not exactly sure what wool's like, but I think of really, really curly hair. When I think of white wool, I think of going to the fairgrounds during the fair and walking through Broadbent and seeing all those sheep and always squeeze all that, whatever it is on the sheep. And that's what I'm picturing here. 
white like wool, white like snow. We're to think of the wisdom of God. The Bible teaches that white hair is a symbol of wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Can you picture that? Were these like lasers? Were these like flames just in the the eyes? Sounds intense. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This looks strong. This looks powerful. This looks like nothing will stop him. This looks like he's established in his voice. This is the second time he's hearing his voice, but now he's seeing his voice, if that's such a thing. His voice was like the roar of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been around roaring water before, an incredible waterfall. But if you get close to a waterfall, it is so loud you cannot hear each other speak. If you have somebody standing right beside you and you're beside a killer waterfall, you can't hear each other. It is so loud. It, was, it is actually scary and terrifying to be around raging waters. And so this trumpet-like voice is now a roaring voice. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We know what those are. Those are the messengers. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the two-edged sword is to be the word of God. Words come out of mouths. We know that. There are multiple places in the New Testament that tell us that. So you think, well, that's a crazy scene, sword coming out of a mouth, a little too graphic for me. That's referring to the word of God, the truthfulness of the word of God, and the authority of the word of God. Matter of fact, if you go over to Revelation chapter 19, when we have Christ returning in the end, the second coming, you have him returning on a horse, and the sword is also in his mouth in Revelation 19. In Hebrews, we have the word of God described as the sword, a two-edged sword. It is active and living, okay? It's able to get inside of you and cut you up deep, it says, in the book of Hebrews. And his face, verse 16, was like the sun, shining in full strength. You've seen that before. You've been driving in the car, and that sun hit in the morning so bright you can't see anything. You've had to pull your visor down or put on your glasses. you got glasses and visor, and you still can't see anything, right? And that's not even in full strength. His face was shining in full strength. This is what John sees. It is incredible. Now, when you picture this figure, this man, what, what is your response? What are you thinking? Wow. I asked a group of kids recently, hey, when you read that, I read it to them. I said, when we read this, what do you think you would do? And they said, I would run. Because it sounds like that. But remember the setting. Imagine being the persecuted church. Imagine all your other brothers have already been killed for the gospel. Imagine that you're in exile to just die in prison for Jesus' sake. And all of the discouragement that comes with that. And then all of a sudden, you turn to hear the voice that says, write a book. And you see that figure standing in the midst of the churches. That should lift the morale of the churches, should it not? 
And here is a lesson for the church today. We don't look for the world to lift our morale. We don't look for gifts to lift our morale. More money or more stuff or more recognition for ourselves is not the head lifter. The head lifter is God himself. And when the church recognizes that this hero is in the midst of the churches, then the church takes a deep sigh and says, he's got us. He's got us. Easily says, the one who loves us and freed us from our sins is first presented in revelation, not enthroned in heaven, not fighting evil, but present with and caring for his people. Suffering Christians throughout the ages have taken comfort in Jesus's presence with them. That's the vision. He is in our midst. And not only ours but the church of the Middle East, the house church of Asia, the church of the poor throughout the world who wonder where their food's gonna come from, the church of those suffering and suffering and suffering, he is in our midst. What a vision, what a vision. Now, this is meant to grab us like man he's strong man he's powerful man he's serious man he's intense John sees this vision after he hears this message to write it down and he writes it down for us but notice that it says he turned to see the voice which means in some ways he wasn't exactly sure what he was going to find when he turned. But oh, it was good. Seven golden lampstands and this powerful Christ Jesus in the middle of it. Wilcock writes, listen to these quotes. The seven lampstands cannot help but recall the one that stood in Moses' tabernacle. You remember that lampstand? Moses, who, like John, was given a vision of spiritual reality and was told to construct a replica of what he had seen in the seven lamps, which, among other things, he duly made were united in a single lampstand. Now listen to this. This is awesome. John's lampstands, however, are separate. It's seven different ones. Perhaps we are meant to see in them the church as she appears in the world, congregations located here and there, which can be isolated and even destroyed. But on the heavenly level, the church is united and indestructible, for she is centered on Christ. The lampstands are scattered across the earth, but the stars are held together in his hand. What a message. Y'all, in this world, church looks like a whole bunch of things. And fakes have been in the middle of the church for as long as there's been a church. And they give the church a bad image and a bad reputation. And we are to labor with, with courage to do our best to make sure that's not the case. But just because there are bad examples of church in the world should not cause you to doubt the Lord of the church who is in the midst of his churches. It should cause you to get up and walk it out and labor to say he is with us. He is in our midst and I want to live for my King Jesus that has eyes like that and feet like that and a voice like that and a strong 
word like that. John saw that, and he wrote it down for us. Now, I want to remind you that when we see this shining, it's the last thing in verse 16, that we see this bright shining face like the sun shining in full strength, it takes us back to that other time, doesn't it? You remember the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember when uh, um, Peter, James, and John were called up to the top of that mount and Jesus transformed himself into the Shekinah glory and it was unbelievable, right? Right? We have that happen in the Gospels. We see Jesus like that. We see Jesus differently in the Gospels as humble and lowly, a a servant, a suffering servant. We have the Mount of Transfiguration where he looks like this. We have, uh, yeah, where he looks like this. We have now Jesus on this island of Patmos where he reveals himself like this. But then we also have here Jesus saying that he is the Almighty God. Believers are to know Christ. In his fullness, he is 100% man, therefore hungry and tearful and emotional, but never sinful. And he is 100% God. He is all of God dwelling inside of Christ, the fullness of God dwelling in human form. This is what John saw. And then we get the reaction. Number one, what he heard. Number two, what he saw. Number three, how John reacted to Jesus. Wilcock writes, from this point right here in Revelation, from this point right here, the centrality of Christ is the ruling theme of Revelation. All things depend on their relation to him. In this book and in your lives, everything in your life depends on your relation to Jesus. Your marriage, your parenting, your work ethic, your income, your stewardship, your friendships, your honesty, your purity, everything depends upon Christ. May we believe it. And may we live like it. So thirdly, how John reacted to Jesus. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What you'll notice about this passage, 9 through 20, is there's a whole lot in here about Jesus and not a whole lot in here about John. It would be a little bit out of uh, 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 perspective, out of, um, yeah, out of perspective, if we kept talking about John in the midst of this vision of Christ, strong and big and wise and present and authoritative and unmoved and unshaken and standing with poise and strength and confidence and authority in the midst of his churches, in the midst of a crooked and fallen world that does not like his churches. That's the image. And so we get a half of a verse, 17a, that says, when I saw him, I fell down dead at his feet. This is a good reaction You know, we, we, you know that song, I Can Only Imagine? I like that song. I like it. I sing it a lot. 
I like it when the sun's out and I can roll the windows down and just sing as loud as I can to that song, right? I like it. But I don't know how much imagination we need of what it's going to be like when we meet Jesus. Maybe some different responses out there. But any person in this room that sees Jesus like this is going to fall down humble. You are. And that's why the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that every human being that has ever lived will bow their knee to him and confess with their mouth that he is Lord. Every human being will worship him one day, either by faith or against their will, when they recognize him like this. See, all aspects of unbelief and disbelief and lack of faith in the world don't see him like this, big and holy and godly and worthy. Christ does, and he gives it to us. And by faith, may we believe. And the response of John here is really the only fitting response. He didn't jump up and down and say, yeah, you the man, God. You're awesome. I worship you. He didn't. He fell over dead, like dead, because this guy is so big and strong. Before we can ever worship God, we got to make sure things are in balance. You're God and I'm not. Every bit of my life is surrendered to you and is below you, God. You could strike me dead right now, and you should. I've sinned against you, and I know it. John's response is a lesson for us. When God makes himself known and reveals himself, worship must follow. And worship begins with repentance and humility and brokenness and surrender and collapse. I give up, God. It's all about you. And you know that we have a world full of people that say they're Christians and have never hit this posture both physically or spiritually. You may have never been on your face in the floor, which I would encourage it, but your heart has never hit the floor like that. Oh, God, I need you. I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. My mouth needs to be cleaned up. My heart needs to be cleaned up. My thoughts need to be cleaned up. God, I need mercy. I need you to wash me. God, I need you to forgive me of all of it. Break me down. Build me up. Start me over. Show me that it's all about you. That's where John's at. And the thing is, is that John is not this, this sinful guy that's having a salvation experience. That's what's even better about this. John has been the most faithful disciple, if you will, according to the Gospels, and that's his response. John knows Jesus. He already told us, hey, I'm here because I've been so faithful to Jesus. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in, I was in the Spirit. He was in the Spirit. And that's the response because that's how big God it reminds me of a quote that I've heard that I love, and I want to share it with you all. It says this, It is impossible to flaunt and swagger while you are carrying a cross. Christians that are loud and opinionated and cocky and arrogant, they ain't it. And it ought not to be us. It ought not to be our church. 
Opinions are a dime a dozen these days, and everybody's got one, and there's so much lack of self-control that not only do they have an opinion that they might share in their home, but now they post it all online, and they argue, and they give their two cents like everybody else does. May that not be us. May you never forget Revelation 1 and how the apostle John responded and think, if John responds that way, then I'm going to respond that way. God, humble us. Give us a reaction in our lives that is like John's. I fell at his feet as though dead. And this is not just John's response. Some of y'all can even recall now. There are so many responses like this one in the Bible. You remember that? Remember when they told Abraham that he was going to have a, a baby and he was too old and his wife was too old? The Bible says that Abraham fell down on his face in worship. You remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus, that big, strong, most obedient that there's ever been, Pharisee of Pharisees, more committed to obeying the law of God than anybody ever, he says, in their own strength. And when the voice came out of the sky that he didn't even recognize, and it was Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? You know what it says in Acts chapter 9? Paul fell down on his face as though dead. Old Testament, New Testament, then, now. This is where the real church hangs out. This is where the real church lives. On our faces, before God, needy. Needy. I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to boast about. You're God and I'm not. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. That's John's response. But praise the Lord, that's not where Revelation 1 ends. And the sweetness of the gospel does not end there either. That's a part of the preaching of the gospel. And there are a lot of preachers these days that are angry and loud and critical. I'm tired of critical preachers, to be honest. We could have stopped there. And it sounded pretty good, didn't it? God's big, we're not. But it gets even better. The final point this morning is not how John reacted to Jesus, but how Jesus reacted to John. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But, but, he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. I don't know what you would have thought that guy in in, in verses uh, 12 through 16 would have said if he finally spoke up. But when you see a scene like that, right, And you think, what's he going to say? What is that figure going to say? His eyes are a flame of fire. His boots are burnished bronze. His voice is like the roar of many waters. He's got a giant sharp sword coming out of his mouth. What's he going to say? Get out of here, you punk. Nobody does that to me. What's he going to say? I don't start fights, but I finish them. What's he going to say? And for everybody that doesn't really know the gospel, we see him speak up. He could have said any of those things. He could have said, get out of my presence. How dare you sin against me? 
but he doesn't. He laid his right hand on me. And he said, don't be afraid. I am all those things that you see in the vision. I'm the first and the last. I'm alive. I was dead. I'm alive now. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. His authority is bigger than we can realize, but he gives comfort to John. Comfort. We read this book a few months back as a church called Gentle and Lowly. And the book Gentle and Lowly is just an emphasis on what Jesus says about his heart in Matthew chapter 11. When he says, come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Learn from me that my heart is gentle and lowly and you will find rest for your souls. In what looked like the most wild scene of a sinful prisoner He's not in prison because of his sin, but he's a sinner and he's in prison. Standing before this figure turns into a beautiful moment, scene of mercy from the one true and living God, God Almighty, who does hold death and Hades in his hand, putting his hand on the shoulder of his guy. And the vision is still him standing in the midst of his churches. What Jesus does to John is what God is doing now to his churches. I've got you and nobody tells me what to do. Nobody causes me to react in a way that I don't want to act. There is comfort here. He comforts John by touching him. He laid his right hand on him. But the passage told us that his right hand had the stars in it. And the stars are the messengers to the churches. And there's some question here about the messengers to the churches because it says angels, but the word angel only means messenger. It doesn't mean angel in any way that you think of an angel. It means messenger. And so there's a whole lot of discussion that the Bible never tells us that, the chur- that churches have angels. We've been here a long time, and we've never talked about the angels of our churches, never even thought about it, to be honest. And you haven't either. So it says angels because the word means messengers, but the word only means messengers. And so could it be that what he's really holding in his hand are the pastors, the elders of his churches, the ones that are the leaders and the, and, and the representatives? Could it be that? I don't know. I'm not trying to give you all the answers here, but what we have is Jesus has a handful of the stars, the messengers, the angels. And at the same time, He puts his hand on John. It's an awesome scene. Could it be that because he is so with and in the midst of the churches that he's able to comfort the churches, which is made up of the individuals, and as he comforts the churches, he's able to comfort John? But he not only comforts him by touching him, but he comforts him by talking to him. And he says this. After he says, don't be afraid, He says, write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Perhaps that's a little bit of an outline in verse 19 of the rest of the book. What you've seen in the past, what you're seeing now, and what you're going to see of all the future. And then verse 20, as for the mystery. The scene here is Jesus reacting to John in a way that comforts John and strengthens John. Life is hard. 
tribulation is real. Suffering and difficulty is a part of the Christian life. And yet, the scene is Jesus right there in the midst of it. Comforting the one receiving the vision by showing his strength in the midst of his churches. This quote is a little bit lengthy, but it's fitting for the end. Wilcock writes, So it must be for all who are God's people. The tribulation and kingship and endurance which Jesus knows, John also knows. And if we are truly his companions, we will share the same experience. In Patmos we suffer, but in the spirit we reign. The practical result at which Revelation aims is to make us see the first in the light of the second. Seeing the suffering in light of the Spirit's strengthening, he means. And even the progression from this scene, which is set entirely in this world, the island of Patmos, to the final scene, which is set entirely in the next, heaven, serves the same purpose. This world, the Christian knows because he lives in it. But as to what it means and where it is going And why it treats him so badly, how can he know these things? Only let it be related to that world. And he begins to understand this world. He comes to see a plan in history and to grasp what is really happening, where he fits in and how it will all end. He perceives the grand design on the right side of the tapestry, which explains the tangle of cross threads and loose ends on the side that he is more familiar with. So he learns to link in his mind the church as he sees it. Lamps that gleam here and there across the dark world, ever seemingly threatened by extinction in the church as Christ shows it. A cluster of inextinguishable stars in the hand of their creator. He is able to face the tribulation because of what he knows of the kingdom. He's able to confront the storm because his foundations are deep in the rock. The tribulation and the kingdom produce Patient endurance. This and that is the object of the book of Revelation. That you and I would believe that Christ is in our midst. Strong and mighty. Victorious. Unshaken with his churches. Are we a real church? Do we believe the scriptures Is Christ our Savior and comfort? And if we are, then let me ask, are you? Because the church is made up of individuals. It's not a place. It's not an address. It's not a building. It's people. It's people that know, that's my Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Revelation in chapter 1. What John heard and what he saw, how he reacted, and then how Jesus reacted. God, we thank you for our Savior who died on the cross for our sins. Father, strengthen our faith. Father, help us to be genuine and authentic in this world. Help us to know that we need you, and with you there is forgiveness of sins. 
Father, use your word to strengthen us to have patient endurance. In Christ's name we pray, amen.